All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And here at this point, Paul does what he typically would have done in most of his letters. That is, he offers a thanksgiving and prayer for the readers. We noted that Paul broke his usual pattern to have this extended um, paragraph on prayer praising God in verses 3 through 14. Here in verse 15, he resumes his usual pattern, and he thanks God for the readers, and he prays for the readers. And we get really a glimpse into what God, Paul hopes God does for the original readers, and by extension for us who are listening in as well. Up first is how Paul thanks God for the Ephesians and the surrounding uh, churches. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. This is a very standard way Paul describes his thanksgiving for uh, his readers in his letters. And so we have really just kind of a standard thanksgiving, thanking God for them because he's heard of their faith and their love just as he frequently does in a lot of his letters. A few details here out of this Thanksgiving. Notice it begins in verse 15 with the phrase, for this reason. For what reason? Well, probably for all the theology that he has just praised God for in verses 3 through 14. For this reason. In other words, look at everything that God did for us in Jesus. Look at all the blessings God has poured out on us. Look at who God has made us in Jesus. And because of all of that, on account of all of that, I thank God for you. And so that's the idea here. So for this reason, in view of all that God has done for us in Christ, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you. And this is one of those phrases that we noted in the backstory that says, wow, that sounds pretty general for, for people that Paul had spent so much time with and suggests that perhaps he's writing to a broader, more general audience than just the Ephesians. And so, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. So your faith in Jesus, and having heard of your love for all the saints. Remember, saints is just a way of referring to God's people, God's holy people, those set apart for him. So when he says your love for all the saints, it's not for a special class of Christians, it's for all Christians. So Paul says, because I've heard about your faith in Jesus, because I've heard about how you love all of God's people, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I'm constantly thanking God for you all while making mention of you in my prayers. And so when, I, when I'm praying and I think about you guys, I thank God for you because I'm so grateful for your faith in Jesus, for your love for God's people. So I'm thanking God for you. Now, in verse 17, he shifts into how he's praying for them. And so he moves from his thanksgiving um, for them to what in those prayers he's asking God to do. So let's listen in at least to the beginning. Let's read verse 17. Here's what he says. He says that, in other words, here's what I'm praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So that's sort of the kind of the nutshell. In a nutshell, here's what I'm asking God to do for you. So he says this about God, that the God of our Lord Jesus, notice how he's described, the Father of glory. 
This is the only place that phrase shows up in the New Testament, the Father of glory. And that's his description of God. God is the glorious Father, the Father of all glory. And it just pictures God as this person that has so much magnificence, so much glory. So I'm asking the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, that he would, here's what he wants me to do, give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. <clears throat> what is exactly he's asking? Well, we've got to kind of clarify what he means by spirit of wisdom and revelation. Uh, the idea of wisdom and revelation really is um, like some sort of deepened spiritual wisdom, deepened spiritual insight or understanding. Um, and notice that that deepened spiritual understanding is in the knowledge of God. So in some way, he's wanting God to help them know him more, um, that God would help them in their knowledge of him to have more wisdom and more revelation, more clarity, more understanding of who God is and what he's up to. That seems to be what he's praying. When he says a spirit of wisdom and revelation, there's two ways you could understand the word spirit. In English, it's pretty common for us to say like a spirit of wisdom and revelation, and that could be like an attitude of wisdom and revelation. You see it, for example, in Romans chapter 8, 15, where Paul talks about a spirit of slavery, you know, kind of this attitude of slavery or bondage, right? Um, that doesn't show up that often in the New Testament. And it's not the usual way the word spirit is used, but it's possible, as you see there in Romans 8, 15, I suppose. But it doesn't really make any sense of the language, like an attitude of wisdom and revelation. What is that? That, that doesn't make any sense. So probably our best bet, particularly in view of Paul's theology, when he says um, that God would give you uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that God is asking for a special work of the Spirit, an extra, you know, an extra help by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. They already have the Holy Spirit. He just mentioned that in the preceding couple verses, that God has sealed them with the Spirit. So it's not that they don't have the Spirit. Um, he will talk about later in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, that they would be filled with the Spirit. And that's probably what he has in mind here, is that... Paul recognizes that they have the Holy Spirit, that we receive the Spirit when we come into Christ, and yet there's this sense of being filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit um, really has greater control of our life and greater work in our life. And that seems to be what he's saying here, that the Spirit ultimately is the source of God's wisdom and God's revelation in our life anyhow. So he's asking that God would give them the, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, so that God would somehow by his spirit help them grow in their knowledge of him with greater wisdom and revelation. Verse 18 continues the thought. Um, the New American Standard frees it up and kind of re repeats the praying, but it really continues the thought. It says, I pray that the eyes of your uh, heart may be enlightened. And then he lists off some things he wants them to know. And so we're continuing on this idea of what he wants the Spirit to reveal to them, what he wants the Spirit to help them grasp and help them see. That's what we're dealing with. And he paints really a beautiful picture at the beginning of verse 18 of like the eyes of your heart, like your your the the inner the inner being's eyesight, your inner person's eyesight, like your heart 
in New Testament theology tends to be like the control center of the person, like like the 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 control center of your person has these eyes that are looking outward towards God. I want the eyes of your heart to be given greater light to be enlightened. And in the original grammar, this sentence is actually kind of difficult because the verb may be enlightened just kind of dangles there. Like, like um, having been enlightened, the eyes of your heart is the way it literally reads. And it, it's not clearly connected to anything. So you could almost at the end of verse 17 put like a dash there. Like if you're writing in English and your thought kind of breaks, or a dot, 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 like you're sending a text message, right? And you go dot, dot, dot. And then you just kind of carry on your thought, but you weren't quite sure how to, to phrase it. And so you just dot, 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 carry on your thought. That's sort of what happens at the end of verse 17. And so, you know, I'm praying that, the, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and the knowledge of him, dot, dot, dot. The, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, that in some way I want your eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you might know some things. What does he want them to know? What does he want them to see and grasp and get? Well, the first thing is, in verse 18, so that you would know what is the hope of his calling. I want you to know what is the hope that he has called you to, is the idea, that God has given you a great hope, and I want you to know deeper and more fully and more completely what the hope he's called you to is. And so he wants them to have greater insight, greater understanding of the future destiny that we all have as God's people, of the hope that God has called us to, of the new heavens and the new earth, the new world where, where everything is made right, where there's no more uh, weeping and crying and tears because the first things have passed away. He says, I, I want the Spirit of God to give you greater revelation and insight and wisdom into that so that it can control your life more, so that that hope can be an engine that drives your life because what you hope for, that's what you live for. So he wants them to have a greater understanding of the hope that they have in Christ as they look forward to all that God has, has, has planned for his people. I think that's a very important prayer for us as God's people today because I think we have a very anemic sense of Christian hope. We tend to think of Christian hope purely as going to heaven when you die, and we have a very vague sense of what that means. And while it's true, if you're in Christ, you'll go to heaven when you die, that's that's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is a new heavens and a new earth, a brand new creation in which righteousness dwells, where everything is the way God wanted it, where we, we see at the end of the book of Revelation, sort of like a, a Garden of Eden on steroids, where everything is perfect and there's no possibility of sin or death and the first things have passed away, so there's no more crying. And that's what we're looking forward to. So we too could benefit by the Spirit working in our life that we would know the hope of his calling more fully and deeply. So that's the first thing he wants them to know. He wants the spirit to help them see this. The next thing he says is, I want you to, I want you to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And so he wants them to know what, what are the what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? Like this glorious inheritance that God has prepared for us, how rich that is, that being being God's children, being part of what God uh, is up to in the world and where, where it's all going, that, man, we have riches untold because of that, that we, there's a wealth of God's inheritance. So he wants them to know what are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints, that um, probably the idea 
of the saints again being God's people in total that there's this the riches of glory that they're going to get with that and then the other thing the third thing he wants them to know in verse 19 is and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe notice that he piles up the words what are what is the surpassing like beyond understandable like it's it's just piled high the greatness of his power towards us who believe that there's power available in Christ, in God, through Christ that we have available to us. And he wants them to know it. What is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe? Notice the synonyms um, that you actually see in what follows. When you re keep reading, he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Notice that the second half of verse 19. These are according to the working of the strength. So you get power, working strength, might, all those are like synonyms that overlap to emphasize there is this incredible abundance of power available to God's people in Christ that is working on our behalf and that is working in us and through us in Christ. And he wants he wants them to know that. He wants, he's praying that the original readers and us as well would know the surpassing greatness of God's power towards us or for us who believe. Now, where he goes from there in this prayer, then, is he just, in, the, in verses 20 to the end, he really kind of kind of riffs on the sur surpassing greatness of his power and kind of plays off of that and says, here's what where this really comes from. Here's where this great power comes from. And it all comes through Jesus and his resurrection and all that. So this is what he says. He says that this great power is according to the working of the strength of his might, which he, God, brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, and so the power that is available to you and to me in Christ is in keeping with the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Um, again, this is so consistent in Paul's theology that, for example, Romans chapter 6, when we come into Christ and we are baptized into him, that we can experience the newness of life that is in keeping with the resurrection of Jesus. Or Romans chapter 8, that he talks about that if the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he will give life to your mortal bodies as well through him who raised him from the dead. And so this raising Jesus from the dead becomes not just a future experience, in our own resurrection, but a present experience in the sense that we now experience the working of God's power, the very power that raised Jesus from, from the dead is at work in us to free us from bondage to sin and all that is wrong with this world. And so this power is, uh, is in keeping with the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. And when God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, when God, notice that, raised him from the dead and exalted him to his heavenly throne. Um, Think of that. It's that very same power that is available to Christians on, uh, in and through Christ. And so um, this, this power is according to um, the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at God's right hand in the heavenly places. There's that phrase again we talked about in our last recording, heavenly places, unique to Ephesians. It means the unseen side of reality where Jesus now rules as king and Lord at God's right hand. And he goes on then as this idea of Jesus being exalted to God's right hand in verse 21 and says, far above, he's been seated, exalted, um, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And so when God raised Jesus up and exalted him to his right hand and seated him on his throne at God's right hand in the heavenly places, that notice that Jesus is seated there far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Those, those words, rule, authority, power, dominion, name that is named, that all refers to those spiritual forces that, we, that are at work in the heavenly places. And in the cultural context of Ephesus and Asia Minor, where they lived in really kind of deep fear of that. They had a deep sense of that, and hence the widespread practice of ancient magic there, where they tried to manipulate and control the rules and authorities and powers. And, and they did that by having uh, the, the whole goal of ancient magic was to know the right names to call on at the right time to get what you wanted or to protect yourself from whatever you needed protection from. And so you would call out the right name. You would use the right powerful name to do these things. That's the way ancient magic worked. Um, it's still practiced in various parts of the world today where they have this sense of that there's spiritual beings and spiritual forces at work in the world that we can't see and we don't understand. And so we got to go through the right steps and the right hoops and call out to the right powers and use the right chants and use the right names. Well, that was deeply embedded into the cultural psyche of Ephesus and part of their magic practices. When you read Acts 19 and you see them burning magic books, they're, they're, they're renouncing all that. and They're saying, no, we're going to depend on Jesus for for our safety and our security and our protection and for all that is good in the world. And so when he, when he's praying this for the original readers, they had a very deep sense of this. They had a very deep understanding of this. They lived it. And so when he says, I want you to know that, that you now have access to a power far beyond any other power, right? Like all those other powers you tried to call on to secure your life, to bring safety, protection, and good things to you. You have Jesus, and he's he's been exalted far above. Notice that far above all of that, not even just above it, but far above all that, like hyper above all of that. Every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion, every name that could possibly be named to bring security, safety, and good things to your life. Not only in this age, the present age, but also in the age to come. Jesus is above all. He's the greatest power in the universe. He is the most powerful person in the universe. And so call out to Jesus, right? Trust in Jesus. Don't worry about your incantations. Don't worry about your formulas. Don't worry about your amulets and all of that. Call out to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That's the idea of this. And so... When he, when he says that Jesus has been exalted far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, those are terms for very spiritual beings and powers and authorities that people throughout history have lived in fear of and tried to gain protection from and tried to know the right spiritual name to call on. And that's the every name that is named, the calling on of some sort of superpower, a supernatural power. Uh, by knowing the right names to call, well, Christ was seated above all of that. And so Christ's authority is supreme, and his power now is at your disposal to help you. And so he says in verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet. So God put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. So Jesus, the supreme being, he's the supreme king, he's over all of that. And all things are in subjection under his feet. And he gave Jesus as head over all things. Notice here, not head over the church. He's head over all things. He's head over the entire universe. He's head over all 
powers. He's head over all authorities. Jesus is head over all things. And God gave Jesus his head, the most important person, the most powerful person in years. He gave him as a gift to the church, which is his body. And so here Jesus is head over all things, has now been given to the, the, the church, which is his body. And so the church now gets to share in his headship, gets to share in his rule, gets to share in his power and his authority. So Christ has been given as this ultimate authority over all things. He's been given as a gift to the church, which is his body, which is the, the extension of his kingdom, right? which is his body, his people. And then the fullness of him who fills all in every way. What does that mean? The fullness of him who fills all in every way. Well, wealth has been written about that phrase because it's a bit unclear. There are really two key questions for us to get answered in order to understand this phrase. The first question is, in what sense is the church the fullness of Christ, right? The fullness of him who fills all in all. And that's that's the first question. In what sense is the church the fullness of Christ? And then the second question is, and in what sense is Christ filling up everything? In what sense is Christ fill all in all, right? We need to kind of figure those two questions out. Let's take the first question. In what sense is the church the fullness of Christ? Well, some suggest that the church, in a sense, completes Christ in that all that Christ intended is only realized in the church. And I suppose that's possible, but I have a hard time making sense of that, both in the flow of Paul's thought and really theologically, that Christ is completed by the church. Um, I think it's better to understand um, that the church is filled with Christ. The, the noun fullness can mean something fills another thing, sort of that active sense, or it can mean something is filled by another thing, sort of that passive sense. And that passive sense actually seems best here, that when we say the, the fullness of him, it means that the church is filled with him, that the church is filled with Christ. So the church as Christ's body, is filled up with Christ. Um, and so this one who is this great, uh, exalted person in the universe fills the church, seems to be the idea. Now, what about the second question? Uh, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How do we understand who fills all in all? And the difficulty here is that the verb fills is actually in the passive here, not active. And sometimes with this particular verb, it can have the active meaning, even when it's passive. That's how the New American Standard, the translation we're reading, is taken in here, who fills everything in every way. Uh, the problem is that when Paul elsewhere uses the active form, he means it in an active sense. And when he uses the passive form, he means it in a passive sense. So if that's what Paul means here, then it should be translated, who is filled all in all. Well, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Certainly not as clear as who fills all in all, right? Um, and so what would that mean? Um, and it's just not super clear, which is why there's been so much written about this. It could be very similar to Colossians um, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that Christ is the fullness of deity, right? Like, And so it's saying that God fills Christ, that the one who fills all in all actually fills Christ. So the church is filled with Christ, and Christ is filled with God. Um, could be that. It's just not super clear, and so we're kind of making our best educated guesses. Either way, however, 
Paul's point is this, that Christ's headship is for the benefit of the church who's filled up with the majestic, exalted, glorious Christ. That's who and what the church is. And that point is clear from this verse. Now, as we wrap up this section, let's just offer a few thoughts by way of application or implications out of this prayer for today. There really several things that we should pay attention to. The first is when Paul prays that they would know the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of power. Just pay attention to those three things. Hope, uh, riches, power. Those three things are everything the world strives for, right? Those three things are things that you know, they, they have all these, the world has all these different ideas about how to get. Uh, you want hope, right? you want purpose and meaning for your life. You want uh, riches and wealth be untold. Oh, you want power and status and all that. Well, guess what? You can have all of that in Jesus. And Paul says, we have that. I want you to come to know that. I'm praying that the Spirit of God would give you insight and wisdom into that. And so don't go looking elsewhere for for meaning and purpose for riches and power. You have it all in Jesus. The other implication I would draw out of this is that this question, really, does your life reflect the power of Christ? Like that same surpassing great power that raised Christ from the dead and was manifested when God exalted him to right hand, that same power that Jesus has of being Lord of all, exalted beyond every ruler and power in the universe. Well, that power is available to us. And so we who are in Christ have, have great power, and so we can live a life of power. And for Paul, Paul's understanding of power is power is perfected in weakness. And so in your suffering, your hardship, your confusion, your difficulty, guess what? God is waiting to manifest his power in and through you. We who are in Christ can know the power, Paul says, of his resurrection, Philippians chapter 3.10. And so this immeasurable power of God that was displayed in Christ is available to us if we will trust Christ and if we will trust God's way of making that power known. And so um, may Paul's prayer for the Ephesians also be true in you and in me, that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power that's for us who believe.